Number 428 has been announced, and we will use that later at the time of the invitation. And as was mentioned previously, what a delightful opportunity we've each been given to assemble, to come together this evening to offer our adoration and the heartfelt sincerity of ourselves in thanksgiving unto the God of heaven. As was mentioned earlier today, certainly we are mindful of those families that have suffered the loss of loved ones. We certainly remember Brother Lehman Flat. Although his health hasn't permitted him to preach quite as much in recent years, there was a day when it was untold how many gospel meetings and various other preaching opportunities he would fulfill during the course of a year. And we're certainly mindful of that family and hopeful that, that their days of grieving will, will, soon, will soon be passed. It might also be well to announce that Deanna and Derek pointed out just a few minutes ago that the preacher at the Willow Avenue congregation, Jeremiah Tatum, his father passed away today. So as I understand, he was actually preaching this morning and then and actually passed away a bit later in the day or perhaps even during the course of the services. So might we keep the Tatum family also in our prayers with the loss of Jeremiah's father. As you well know, the Bible Bowl took place yesterday, and, and as much as our students studied the first 24 chapters of that book, it seems a bit fitting to me at least to not leave the book hanging, but to realize that it does have a total of some 31 chapters, and at least over the next week or so, we will see if we can't complete that book and draw it to a point of closure, a point of conclusion, and also notice that in these concluding chapters will be a rather notable additional set of lessons that we have not heretofore seen through the first 24 chapters of that book. Some new personalities enter into the character of matters. Also, some interesting and rather challenging features we shall see that has to do with witches and death and many other things over these last few chapters of the book of 1 Samuel. Tonight, though, in chapters 25 and 26, we will take a look at another set of individuals who, again, are somewhat new to us in this book. As we come to that particular set, those two chapters, we might easily appreciate that in continuation of what we've seen before, we did notice last Sunday evening that David, in a rather magnificent act of kindness, spared the life of Saul. Although he merely cut off the corner of the robe of Saul, he nonetheless was in position to have taken his life if that had been his desire. We did notice, though, that as chapter 24 closed, Saul even made a magnificent confession in that he said to David, Thou hast been more righteous than I. And he even made pleading to David to never in fact eliminate or annihilate his seed. And with that, the curtain closed on 1 Samuel chapter 24. As chapter 25 opens tonight, we are led immediately to see the end of a rather great life, but also to appreciate another set of features of a family that has been somewhat new to us given the study this evening. As before, let's look at the historical overview of these two chapters first, and then extract from them some thoughts that might prompt us to see some applications to our own life as we come near the latter part of the lesson this evening. I mentioned a moment ago that the very first announcement in chapter 25 is the death of Samuel. That one who has been such an ongoing center of greatness in so many ways through the first several chapters of the book especially. It was he, of course, who we noticed his birth back in chapter 1. We noticed also the guiding hand he exhibited through the leadership of God over Israel. And yet, 
In chapter 25, verse 1, we find the death of Samuel is herein recorded. Although not much is said about it here, we shall find remarkably enough that much more will be said about it when we arrive at chapter 28, which will, of course, come in another lesson a bit later in the series. But for, but for now, it is after his death we are immediately introduced, as I mentioned before, to a family. A man whose name was mentioned in the reading Joy read for us earlier, Nabal was his name. We notice that the story unfolded, the episode much in the following way. David, you might recall, again was fleeing from Saul. He, with a rather small number of men, found themselves in a number of wildernesses in the central region of Palestine. They had been in the wilderness of Ziph for a while. They had moved to the wilderness of Maon for a time. And we notice that all the while, needless to say, they were running short on supplies. Food would be at a minimum. Also, other matters of great need would, needless to say, not often be found. So it was at this particular time that we are introduced to a man named Nabal. Nabal was a wealthy man. He himself lived in Maon. Remember that wilderness I mentioned earlier? In addition to that, we also notice that he had possessions in Carmel. This man was sufficiently wealthy that he lived in one place and had some possessions actually positioned elsewhere. However, David, seeing that he and his troops, his men, were somewhat low on supplies, he gave orders to some of his men, some of those officers, to go and in fact make a request of Nabal. The request was as follows. All the while that David and his men had been in the wilderness of Maon, they actually had treated very well the servants of Nabal. They in fact had assisted in protecting them. They had made sure that marauders and other kind of invaders were kept at bay. David, you see, had actually done a remarkable favor to Nabal. In this occasion, with this particular request, David then simply asked if Nabal, out of the wealth and prosperity available to him, would in fact share some supplies with David and his men. So when David's men came to Nabal and made this request, Nabal heard with a bit of patience what they had to say. But then he responded with gruffness. He responded with impatience and he responded with not the slightest sense of helping them. In fact, he even asked, Who is David that I should help him? There could be anybody come to me and claim that he was from David. How do I know that you, in fact, are as you claim to be? He sent them in away and gave them not the slightest penny, not the slightest morsel of bread. At this point, these men returned to David and shared with him what these men from Nabal had, in fact, said we find that David responded with a notable degree of anger. He was upset. Here was perhaps the greatest opportunity that was available to him to help himself and his men with some much-needed supplies. When Nabal had responded with such incourteousness, when he had responded with such harshness, that brings us immediately to notice that David prepared again to take his... To, take his troops and to go and slaughter Nabal and all of those that were with him to absolutely make an end of this man. It might be fair at this point to observe a few interesting things about Nabal. I've used his name so far, but this chapter has two things to say about him in particular. I would invite you to read verse 3 with me. 1 Samuel 25, verse number 3. 
Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the, man, and the name of his wife, Abigail. And she was a woman of good understanding and of a beautiful countenance. But the man was churlish and evil in his doings, and he was of the house of Caleb. And almost immediately we notice that there was a great difference between this man and his wife. Whereas she was a lady of understanding, whereas she was a person who it seems is very wise, he is described as being evil in his doings and also churlish. I have helped us appreciate a bit about the name of this man by looking at this observation. Quite often in that ancient era and in that ancient day, names had a great significance, such as Elijah and such as Samuel and a whole host of others. All those names had something to do with the name of God and how notable it was to name, to name one's child in a way like that. If you were to ask, what does the word Nabal mean? Perhaps, much to our surprise, the name actually means fool. It means folly. And if one seeks for a deeper understanding, it means senselessness and foolishness. It has to do with the thought of evil. And in fact, the word churlish, that word used in the King James translation, that word literally means harsh and severe. This man's name did not have much good to say about him, did it? Wouldn't it be awful to be named fool, to be named folly, and yet that was the significance of his name in the original tongue. But you'll notice in verse number 25, the actual lesson text for tonight, there are some more things stated about this man Nabal. Let not my Lord, I pray thee, regard this man of Belial, even Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, thine handmaid, saw not the young men of my Lord whom thou didst send. It is a striking observation that Abigail said these things about her husband. She was the speaker, and on this occasion she said, As is his name, so is he. He is known for his folly, known for his foolishness, and you'll notice he is also called a man of Belial. Wouldn't it be awful if you could find nothing better to say about your spouse than that? Notice furthermore, in that same verse, it is said, as his name is, so is he. Needless to say, we shall not find much noteworthy to say about Nabal. His folly and his foolishness and his senselessness, it seemed, were the hallmark of his person. And you'll notice, furthermore, that brings us to this. I said just a moment ago that he, that is David, prepared himself and his troops and were ready to march against Nabal to take his life and do away with this man of Belial. However, before he was able to come, Abigail, the wife of Nabal, learned that he had sent away the servants of David. He had sent them away and spoke to them harshly. He had offered them no assistance and no help at all. Just as soon as she learned what her husband had done. Verse 18 says, Then Abigail made haste and took two hundred loaves and two bottles of wine and five sheep ready-dressed and five measures of parched corn and a hundred clusters of raisins and two hundred cakes of figs and laid them on asses. In other words, with a marvelous degree of haste, she got things ready and proceeded to send these to David at once hoping to appease his anger, hoping to do away with the wrath he had intended. In the latter verses of this chapter, 
we find that Abigail did come with all these supplies and just as David was getting ready to leave, he espied Abigail coming and they entered in conversation. She spoke with him and made note of the gift she was now offering. And she furthermore described to David that he did, ought not wish to kill Nabal. You might ask, on what basis did Abigail request the life of her husband? Two bases. First was this. She made note that Nabal is this foolish man, this man of folly, and you do not want his blood upon you. You will be the next king and you will be the future leader of Israel and you do not want the innocent blood of this man upon your hands. I know, she said, that he treated you badly. I know that he refused you supplies and I know he talked so harshly to you. But realize, nonetheless, he hasn't made an affront to your life and he hasn't made an attack upon you. At this point, please accept these as my gift to you and please accept that in place of the life of my husband. David, in fact, highly complimented the wisdom of Abigail. And as he did that, he promised her he would not attack her husband and he would not, in fact, attack his possessions. But he promised that in the element of that security and safety... He would accept these as a replacement to the life of her husband. And in the closing verses of the chapter, we find the interesting scene with which Abigail shared this news with her husband. We notice that she, as a dutiful wife, didn't try to hide the fact from him. He, however, we find was drunken. He too was, in addition to all those other things, a man of liquor. When the morning came and the wine had dissipated from him, Abigail, in fact, shared with him the fact that David was going to take his life. David was coming after you, but I sent this gift and I sent it with a hope that it would appease David of your life. We notice, interestingly enough, in verse 37, this is how all of that played out. But it came to pass in the morning when the wine was gone out of Nabal, and his wife had told him these things that his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. And it came to pass about ten days after that the Lord smote Nabal that he died. We see the end of this churlish, harsh, foolish, stubborn fellow. Ten days later, after his wife shared with him this news, after his heart had become so hard that his life was brought to an end. With that, in verses 39 to 44 we see that David was so impressed with Abigail that he, in fact, made an invitation to her that she might be his wife. She accepted that invitation, and Abigail became another one of the wives of David. As that was noted, we find one other rather interesting and unusual observation. It is the observation of the very last verse of chapter 25. But Saul had given Michael his daughter... She had already been given to David, recall. David had married her. But we notice now Saul had now given her to another man. That too will come back to haunt Saul at one time. And it will come back to be a remarkable matter in the life of David on some future occasion. He wanted Michael back. With that, chapter 26 opens before us. We notice a few of the additional matters of this chapter. It does, in fact, use some of the issues of chapter 23. 
as our students studied in that chapter earlier, wasn't it the Ziphites who had made a plan, a conspiracy against David. They had gone to Saul and said, We know where David is. He's in the wilderness of Ziph. On that occasion, Saul had told them, You go back and you watch with care. And you watch with great determination. You find out where David is staying, where he's going day by day. And when he least suspects it, I then, based on your information, will be able to come and attack him and be sure to get him. The Ziphites went back. They watched. They observed. They took great meticulous care. In this chapter, we notice that the Ziphites came to Saul, verse number 1. And it says, Doth not David hide himself in the hill of Hekalah, which is before Jeshimon? They came back. They wanted the good graces and the favor bestowed upon them by Saul. So they, in fact, told Saul where David was. Notice again, he is in the hill of Hekalah. And thus, Saul makes another ready attempt on the life of this one who really was no threat to him at all, the life of this one named David. As you can see near the bottom of this slide, one more time we come face to face with an intriguing set of situations. It plays out before us in the following way. Saul and his men were asleep soundly. In fact, it is described in verses 9 through 11 as a sleep from the Lord. They were sleeping so soundly one night that David and one of his men sneaked right into Saul's camp. Here was another opportunity for David to take Saul's life and use his own spear to do it. Nestled beside Saul while he slept so soundly that night was his spear and a cruise of water. We notice that David sneaked right up to him. He, in fact, was able to take anything in the camp he wanted. He could even have taken the life of Saul. Instead, we notice David spared Saul's life yet one more time. He did, however, do the following. We notice that he did take the cruise of water. And furthermore, he also, in regarding to that spear that had been thrown at him not once but twice and missed, that same spear was again that which David was able to take on this occasion. In the verses that follow, you'll notice that beginning in verse number 6, some of the following matters are so carefully and so well described. After sneaking out of the camp, David went a short distance away, and then he aroused them by shouting. He got their attention, and the first person he addressed was Abner. Although it really wasn't such a thorough insult, David in fact said to Abner, You must not be carefully watching Saul very well. I sneaked right up to him and look at what I'm holding. His cruise of water and his spear. You apparently weren't watching very well, Abner. It would be hard for Abner to refute the evidence, wouldn't he? But in addition to that, he also addressed Saul one more time. Look, Saul... You have been chasing me yet again, and I have been no threat to you. I could have taken your life. While you slept so soundly here in Hekalah, I was right beside you. Look at the evidence in my hand, and yet I spared your life. As you can see in that conversation, David attempted one more time to impress upon Saul. I do not wish to pose a threat to you. It is true that I have been anointed. The God of heaven has selected me, and you have been rejected because of your disobedience, Saul. 
That, however, was the choice of the Almighty God of heaven. For all those reasons, you might notice how it ends. Saul makes a rather notable confession. This confession is so potent that I would invite you to read it with me. In 1 Samuel 26, verse 21, Saul, speaking to David, had these words to say. Then said Saul, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do thee harm, because my soul was precious in thine eyes this day. Behold, I have played the fool and have erred exceedingly. Saul made a confession, I have sinned. And in addition to that, he said, I have played the fool and I have erred exceedingly. Although you and I have noticed more than once, there has been some attempted statements on the part of Saul that he, in fact, would do better. It seems he always fell back into the same way of life, chasing David, trying to kill him. It would seem that this was his last attempt. In fact, we shall see his death in chapter 31, and between now and then he will be a frantic mess. It would seem he will make no more careful attempts on the life of David as he has in the past. Maybe he really meant what he said this time. I have played the fool. I have erred exceedingly. You'll notice one final time in verse number 25, the last verse in the chapter. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be thou, my son David. Thou shalt both do great things, and also shalt thou prevail. So David went his way, and Saul returned to his place. Saul even admitted that, David, you will do great things. You, in fact, are the one on whom the blessings of God now rest. You will be the one honored to occupy the great position of preeminence. And with that, chapter 26 comes to its close. We'll take up chapter 27 on our next occasion. For tonight, in what few moments remain, what are some quick observations we might make? about these two chapters and some very, very brief matters that we can use to assist ourselves in our walk of faith day by day. May I submit to you one of the first things comes from the behavior of Nabal himself. We tried to notice earlier the large degree of disrespect in his life. Here was one as wealthy as he was, and despite the fact that David had been so good to him, David previously again had assisted him and his flocks, taking great pains to offer protection to him in the wilderness of Maon. And yet, when David came and asked only a meager amount of supplies, Nabal was unwilling to assist him in any way at all. Was he stingy? Perhaps so. The text does not say. Was he simply disrespectful to others? It seems almost certain that was true. I've used that as the lesson before us. This disrespect on the part of Nabal almost cost him his life and all of his possessions. David was ready to come against him and ready to take it all. Thankfully for the intervention of Abigail, he was spared, at least for a short time. Ten days later, God took his life, of course. For now, consider this set of lessons with me. Do you and I sometimes take the good things that others have done for us for granted? Maybe our wife, maybe our children, maybe a good friend elsewhere. May it be that they have done something noteworthy, something very gracious, and something rather precious to us, but then we choose to ignore it. 
We pretend it's unimportant. We then return evil when they've done us good. Shame on us if that be our behavior. The Word of God encourages us to think in ways like this. Matthew 7 verse 12, Therefore all things whatsoever ye would that men should do unto you, do ye even so unto them, for this is the law and the prophets. Would Nabal have wished David to act toward him the way that he was acting toward David? Surely not. If he were the one running all over the neighborhood and all over the countryside fleeing for his life, and if he were the one simply wanting a little food to eat and a little water to drink, would he have wanted David to share it with him? Sure he would. May you and I also be thankful for what others have done to us, in terms of goodness at least, and to never return evil for good. You'll notice in Ephesians 5 verse number 20, we're admonished to always be thankful. We're noticed in that particular location to ever have a heart of gratitude about us, thankful for the good things about us, and ready to share those things with others when they themselves are the ones in need. You'll also appreciate that in Philippians 1 verse 3. Paul was a good example of this very attitude, wasn't he? That church in Philippi was one that had extended goodness to him. And Paul said, I thank God always in prayer for you. Paul was thankful for them, wasn't he? And in all the opportunities before him, he was able to share that goodness with them in ways he could. Now we know that Paul was off in prison. He wasn't in position to help them physically that much. But what a great benefit had he been to them spiritually. Preaching the gospel helping to plant the church in that area and doing for them the greatest things of all. We notice that's very opposite to what Nabal would have been. May you and I not be as foolish as he. May that name not be descriptive of us. You'll also notice yet another lesson. The element of wisdom seen in this case in his wife Abigail. Here was another woman who occupied a rather notable position. It is unfortunate that Nabal was such a fool, but his wife was so wise. Did you notice again that in haste, 1 Samuel 25, 18, she got things ready and knew that her husband had acted in a sorrowful way. She knew he had acted in such a disgraceful and disrespectful fashion. And thus, she got things ready, sent it in the proper fashion to David, appeasing his anger. And we notice that she was highly complimented by David himself for her element in behavior. When you think about wisdom, isn't it true that we are admonished to be wise, aren't we? How thoroughly and how completely do we find in the book of Proverbs admonitions that read like these? Proverbs 4 verse number 7, Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore get wisdom, and with all thy getting get understanding. That squarely is directed toward you and me, isn't it? Wisdom is so frequently personified in the first several chapters of Proverbs as if it's something direct, something to be gained, something to be pursued, something to be acquired. And we're told that with all of our getting and with all of our interest to pursue it and to seek it and to get it. We notice that particular matter is seen in Matthew 10, verse 16, when Jesus, in speaking to those whom He sent out on the limited commission, did He not tell them that they were to be wise as serpents and to be harmless as doves? 
they were going to be preaching and they weren't always going to be accepted. The message they delivered wasn't always going to be well received and they needed wisdom to know how to safeguard their lives and also to preach in such an efficient and effective way. Wisdom. When you and I give thought to wisdom, it no doubt leads us to the great value that it plays in our life as we deal with and interact with others. We see, for example, in Mark eleven twenty seven, as well as in the book of Philemon, that interesting set of events in which wasn't Paul the master at knowing how to effectively deal with the emotions of others. After all, Philemon had had a slave whose name was Onesimus, and Onesimus had run away. Thus, Philemon might have been angry. He might, in fact, have been beside himself, almost ready to take the life of Onesimus. But yet in this tender letter that Paul wrote to him, in fact, sending it back with Onesimus, he said, Receive him back not merely as a slave, but as a brother in Christ. And you know what, Philemon? I know that you'll do even more than I ask of you. That's wise biblical psychology, isn't it? I know, Philemon, you'll do even more than I've asked. I strongly suspect that Paul never got a bill. I suspect, in fact, that Philemon was happy to do for Onesimus because he did see him as a brother in Christ. Wisdom perhaps leads us to another lesson. The remarkable providential will of God. You'll notice that that has really been a matter that could have been mentioned in almost every Old Testament book and certainly almost every chapter in 1 Samuel. I would invite you to look with me at the way that this happened. In chapter 26, David again had the opportunity to take the life of Saul. One more time in this region of Hekalah, there David was right there in the camp at night and Saul sound asleep. All he had to do was one thrust of the spear and that would have been the end of Saul. But one more time, David said, This is the Lord's anointed. And furthermore, it's not my job to take his life. The God in heaven will do that. If it be the will of God, He will take care of those matters. And wasn't that a remarkable comment? The God of heaven will take care of the duration in life. That's still true, isn't it? It's not my job to take life purposefully, and neither is it yours. Rather, that was a matter that's reserved for the special characteristics of the jurisdiction of God. The way that Paul, or rather the way David stated that, is still so very sweet and special. Look with me at verse 10 of 1 Samuel 26, please. David said, Furthermore, as the Lord liveth, the Lord shall smite him, or his day shall come to die, or he shall descend into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should stretch forth mine hand against the Lord's anointed, but I pray thee, take now the spear that is at his bolster and the cruise of water, and let us go. Did you notice how David stated this? When the opportunity was so clear, he said, This belongs to God. He will die in battle due to the will of God, or he will perish in some way due to the will of God. Isn't it still that way? When it comes to the end of my life or yours, let that be the choice of God to take care of that. There have been those in our day who have lifted high the thought of euthanasia, this so-called mercy killing. 
I don't read anything about that in the Word of God. I don't read anything about the purposeful taking of life, but rather doesn't that belong to the choice and the will of God Himself? The way in which we might well conclude that comment takes us to several verses in the New Testament. If it's truly our plea and our desire that God's will be done, then isn't it true that in Matthew 6 verse 10, we'd be quick to say, Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. The very thing the Lord prayed on that occasion. In that prayer, He talked to His disciples. Later we see in Matthew 26 39, the Lord Himself made that prayer. While in the garden of Gethsemane, did He not say, Let this cup pass from me, but... Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Finally, in that text in James 4, verses 13 to 15, with your life and mine being compared to a vapor that appeareth for a little while and then vanisheth away, it says that our desire should be if the Lord will. We will go into a city and buy and sell and get gain or do this or that. With all of that said, the closing lesson for this evening and the closing appreciation drawn from chapter 26 is the very assessment that Saul made of himself. I tried to emphasize a bit earlier that it seems to have been a significant comment on his part. Previously he had made some statements, but it seems he had failed to carry them out. He had stated that his, he had a desire to do well to David, and then it seems the very next chapter he's chasing him to take his life again. This time, we notice in chapter 26, he said, I have played the fool. I have erred exceedingly. And as the chapter closed, as he made note of his own sin, he furthermore said, David, may all things in fact be prosperous and well with you. Those comments led me to at least comment about this. It is somewhat sad to appreciate that these words have a somewhat great element of sadness, it seems to me. After all, when you and I first encountered Saul back in chapter 9, it seems as if all the promise of the future was in front of him. He was handsome. He seemed to be wise. He was smart. He seemed to be one who had the opportunity of leadership because others were quick to follow him. He was a great influence upon others. He, in fact, saved Jabesh Gilead on that occasion. What a tremendous spiral downward he has followed from then until now. Now we see a shell of a man who the best he could say is, I have played the fool. I have sinned and I have erred exceedingly. May you and I never come to the end of our way and that's the best we can say. What a waste of a life it will have been. What a waste of potential and possibility and great opportunity would have been ours, but it would have been, in essence, completely wasted. What a tragedy. Our desire ought to be, when we come to the end of our way, that we, like Paul, could say, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all of them also that love is appearing. And with that, in the close of this lesson tonight, we perhaps might in fact look forward to chapters 27 and following, but we shall wait until the next lesson to take that discussion up. For this evening, here are some concluding thoughts. David spared Saul's life yet again. And as far as the lessons we've seen, we first of all were reminded of the terribleness of disrespect 
and this fool named Nabal and what he had done to David. Then we were led to appreciate following that the wisdom of Abigail and the encouragement that you and I have to be wise. Finally, we saw the last two lessons. Seeing one more time about Saul's own assessment of himself, the sorriness and the rather pitiful statement that's found in it, and interestingly enough, that note of God's providential will. This very evening as you and I examine ourselves, whether we be in the faith, in the words of 2 Corinthians 13, 5, may you and I find wisdom riding supremely. The great thought of following the great master himself, he is the wisest one of all. If you find yourself having acted foolishly, maybe you have in fact played the fool more than once. You've done things, said things, been places that have brought reproach and shame upon your influence as a Christian. Why not this very night make all of that right? God will forgive if you will believe in His nature of the Word that He has taught. If you will in fact confess that to Him and repent of it, He has promised to forgive. 1 John 1 verses 8 and 9. If you need to be baptized into Christ, why not tonight? There will never be a better time than this one, the ninth day of September 2012. If we could help you in either of those ways this evening, will you not in fact come at once and in haste and in wisdom while together we stand and while we sing?